Good evening, everyone. Where is my jetpack? I wanted to arrive on a jetpack here at the Science Festival. I think that's much more appropriate. Anyway, it's great. It's great to be here. Think of me as uh, your launch vehicle to an area of very sophisticated science. My role here in the, in the program is to be the person who the uh, scientists who we've gathered for this uh, great session tonight will be able to say, no, John, that's actually not quite right. Um, actually, it's a little different from what you're describing or uh, my favorite. Well, nonsense, John, that's actually ridiculous what you're saying. Um, so you'll be hearing a lot of that tonight uh, in addition to uh, just uh, some things that I thought I would start with. Um, it's important in a non-scientific way to introduce the subject to give you a sense of the landscape of nothing uh, that we're going to be talking about. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is a show about nothing isn't exactly new. Uh, it was actually canceled some years ago. It's in reruns, um, <clears throat> but they've decided to reprise it here. So many of you are probably more sophisticated on this subject than you think. Um, but what is not nothing? Um, we're going to find out what it is, but what it is not is, uh, is this, wearing black, like we do here in New York a lot. Um, this is a Mets cap, if you look really carefully. Um, being a Mets fan is kind of like being in a densely compacted, collapsing universe. Um, <laughs> Whereas being a Yankees fan is more like being in an infinitely expanding universe. Um, infinity and uh, the, uh, the, the idea of nothing register in popular culture. And I think I've got some examples here um, in a very low-tech way. Um, nothing we find in history in metaphors like, like this. Okay, that's a kind of a medieval view of history. All we are is dust in the wind. A slight update of that might be something like this, a more abstract notion. Mathematics, concept of zero, everybody understands that. And then of course, this I think has much more kind of theoretical physics, quantum mechanical implications here. You may recognize this song. No is no, no is always no. If they say no, it means a thousand times no. And then, of course, there are the, uh, the classics of the genre. You don't recognize John Cage? <laughs> I'd play all four minutes and 33 seconds, but we really don't have time here. Um, but enough of my cheap shots on the concept of nothing. Uh, let's welcome John Barrow out here. Um, he's going to begin our program. It's always good to start a program on challenging subjects in uh, abstract mathematics, physics, uh, with a cosmologist. And John Barrow definitely fits that bill. He's a research professor of mathematical sciences in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge in England. The author of nearly 20 books for a general audience, including the book of nothing. And he's the director of the Millennium Mathematics Project, a mathematics education initiative for a history of nothing, a real one this time. Please welcome John Barrow. Well, thank you very much. <clears throat> if John Lennon and the Beatles have taught us anything uh, it's that nothing is real. But nothing is also surreal. 
It creates all sorts of playful elaborations uh, on the basic theme of how is it possible for nothing to be something. And you can see from this picture here a little uh, potpourri of famous examples from Shakespeare's mastery of the wordplay of the English language to John Cage's attempt we've just heard to define the absolute zero of sound precisely with 273 seconds of silence to galleries which are full of blank canvases whose authors are all suing one another for breach of copyright. <laughs> but nothing is not just a game. Dealing with the concept of nothing has been pivotal in all sorts of histories of fundamental ideas. So the study of how the concept of zero arose in some cultures in their counting systems and not in others and why, uh, how the empty set emerged in logic and the purposes to which it was put are of great importance and interest. Philosophers grappled for a long time with how nothing could be something. The Greeks never had a zero in their counting system because they believed by allowing nothing to be something, they were sowing the seeds of internal contradiction. Both theology and cosmology found they had to come to grips with the idea of creation out of nothing. What did that mean? What did it entail? Uh, and what did it have to say about physics in the large? And then looking at physics more specifically, we come to focus upon the whole issue of the vacuum or the void. Does it exist? How do we characterize it? What does it mean? And what I want to do in these opening remarks is unwind some of the strands of the threads which bind together different ideas about the vacuum and the void in physics, starting near the beginnings of systematic thought with the Greeks and taking us quickly up to contemporary issues in cosmology and fundamental physics. Well, in the time of the ancient Greeks, there were really three interesting and dominant types of theory. Starting around 450 BC, you see the atomists like uh, Democritus have a view of the universe in which they believe the universe was a great infinite void of empty space which was filled uh, with small particles which we would now call atoms. Hence the name the atomists for this group. So for them empty space really could exist and there were particles of matter which moved around within that void. The great opponent of that idea 100 years later, 350 BC, is the great polymath Aristotle. He believed that there could not be a void all motion and movement was created by contact between things. So you couldn't have atoms separated by empty space. They wouldn't be able to move. You couldn't have atoms of matter as basic because there would have to be empty space between. For Aristotle, the vacuum was rather subtly described. It was uh, a place where the presence of bodies was potentially possible, but not actually possible. So he believed that the vacuum could never be realized within our universe of space. And for Aristotle, the universe was finite in extent. It had no beginning in time and it had no end. 
He had no concept of a world having a beginning because it would have to have emerged from nothing and nothing could come from nothing. The third picture was a Stoic picture in which there were again stars and particles dotted uh, within a finite universe, but everything was imbued with that sort of continuous ethereal fluid which was everywhere. The subtlety of the Stoic view was that although the universe was finite, the universe of stars and other objects, beyond it there was an extra cosmic void. So beyond the boundary of the universe, we find this sort of infinite uh, extent of whatever you care to argue it should be, but it contains nothing. So here's our friend Aristotle abstracted from Raphael's great picture. Here is a later image of this Aristotelian world with a sharp boundary in space at its edge where the stars end. And beyond is a sort of mystical great celestial machinery. The Stoic picture, a little distorted in the imagery here, this picture survived for a long time. So in his early years, this would have been the view of the world that Newton would have had. The extra cosmic void beyond and the world of the ether and the stars within. Well, it was Aristotle's picture of the world which really won out and was influential for another 1,500 years. It became mingled with the Christian, Judeo-Christian view of the world. And so the idea there was no beginning was eventually replaced. Particularly influential thinkers like St. Augustine uh, created the view that the world was created out of nothing. And not just the world, but things like time and space and the rules that govern the world came into being then as well. The whole Aristotelian view of the vacuum and the world was taken up by physicists in medieval times in all sorts of interesting ways. The challenge was to try to accommodate the notion of vacuum in physics and within theology. Theologians of the time would regard the vacuum as something, if not evil, then undesirable. The vacuum was, after all, what the world was made out of. It was something God had rejected, and the vacuum was somewhere where God would not be. So this was why we should all abhor a vacuum. Eventually, these views were rather overthrown by theologians in the 13th century who regarded the uh, transcendence of God, the power to do whatever he wished, as being more important than the requirement that God should be everywhere. And so began rather more sophisticated arguments about the nature of the vacuum in physics. And on this slide, you can see a number of the great medieval thought experiments uh, that are so fascinating. An ancient one that began with Lucretius in about 60 BC was uh, to have two sliding sheets. So these might be of very finely polished material or metal. And the argument was, if you join them together and then separate them, instantaneously you should make a vacuum. Because when they're stuck together, there's nothing in between. When you separate them, then very briefly you must have a vacuum in place before the air rushes in to fill it. Aristotle claimed that there's never a true vacuum. There's always some air caught in there uh, at the beginning. And then others argued 
uh, like Burley, that if there really was a true vacuum, you would never be able to se separate the two plates. But then others like Bacon pointed out that you don't need the plates to run this argument. If you drop anything, suppose this triangle with a sharp corner here, you drop it on the ground, then instantaneously you must create the same surface problem. There must be instantaneously uh, a vacuum. So if the point was not perfectly sharp, maybe there would be a little gap there and there couldn't be a vacuum. So back and forth went these arguments about whether it was possible to create a vacuum, whether you could do it just temporarily and it was unstable and quickly filled. And some people like Burley introduced this unusual concept that there was what he called a celestial agent. There was a force in nature that always acted to stop a vacuum forming within the universe. And Bacon and others uh, challenge this type of idea, could you have a law of nature that was negative? How could you have a law that said something does not happen rather than a principle that governs what does happen? I mention this because in modern cosmology and the study of black holes, Roger Penrose is famous for putting forward the notion of so-called cosmic censorship that infinities never form in the collapse of matter in the universe. They're always cloaked by black holes so that you can never see them from outside. And he called this the principle of cosmic censorship, that singularities and infinities could never be viewed from the outside. It's very reminiscent of this celestial uh, agency uh, of the Middle Ages. Well, this was the great era uh, the 14th century and the 13th century, of these debates about the nature of the physics and the existence of the vacuum. An interesting spotlight on what people seriously argued about at that time. What came next in the 1600s was a period of experimental investigation. So Torricelli discovered the barometer in 1644. So if you take uh, a tube of water as he did first of all, uh, you then invert it uh, and place its base uh, in a jug of water, then there will be a gap at the top of the tube. Just as when you do it with mercury, you have a gap at the top. And he was worried what was in that gap. There must be a vacuum in that gap. And then scientists like Pascal set about experimenting of what would happen if you took the barometer up a high mountain or a tower and noticed that the size of the gap at the top of the barometer would change and began to understand that that vacuum at the top of the barometer was controlled by pressure, atmospheric pressure. Other scientists like Boyle carried out detailed experiments of what went on in tubes and uh, enclosures which you pumped all the air out of. Some consequences are rather obvious. If you put living creatures, small mice or birds in there, they would die. And you would, or you would make them go unconscious, let more air in and they would come back to consciousness. You could place magnetic fields across these evacuated regions and follow the passage of light through them. So there began a period where people realized that you could investigate the properties of regions and enclosures that seemed to be devoid of everything. 
This picture here is of one of the most spectacular physics experiments that was ever done by Otto von Goerke, uh, who was the mayor of Magdeburg in the 1650s. And he wanted to demonstrate to his uh, general audience in his town uh, the reality of the vacuum and the forces that it could create. And so what he did was to create uh, two teams of horses here, uh, and he had these two great hemispheres. They still exist uh, in the city today. And he joined them, bolted them together, used pumps, which then evacuated the hemispheres. So you have an almost vacuum inside. And then he demonstrated that if you put the hemispheres here, g'd up the horses and made them run off in different directions, they were incapable of pulling the two hemispheres apart. Whereas if you open the valves and let the air in, the two hemispheres would just gently roll apart. So this was the reality, the forcefulness of the vacuum. These experiments are really uh, made rather beautifully real by this famous uh, picture by Joseph Wright of Derby, uh, painted nearly 100 years later. It's called Experiment with an Air Pump, and... Uh, it's a fabulous exercise in the use of light. But the physics behind it, someone is carrying out for this audience an experiment with a, a vacuum jar. They're evacuating air from a jar that has a small bird in it and watching the bird lose consciousness, let the air back in, and the bird becomes consciousness, conscious again. So this focuses everyone's attention upon the faces of the viewers, the audience, the bird, the instruments. Well, the next great step that took place in this picture was very significant. One of the greatest scientists of all time, James Clerk Maxwell, the discoverer of the theory of electromagnetism and much else besides. Maxwell was the person who first realized that when you talk about the vacuum in physics, you should not imagine it to be an empty box, which is what people had always imagined, that it was just nothing in ordinary language, empty space. Maxwell had a subtle definition of the vacuum. It was what was left when everything that can be removed has been removed. That can be rather different from absolutely nothing. And from Maxwell's picture, of the vacuum, a number of different properties of the vacuum then became possibilities. The vacuum can change with time. There can be more than one possible vacuum state that any system can be in. And the vacuum need not be stable. So it can fall into another state rather quickly. So let's see a picture which illustrates those possibilities. So one should now think of a landscape of possible energies that a system could reside in. And the possible vacuum states are just like the valleys here. They're local minima in the sense that if you get wiggled away from them, you fall back downwards. So there are, in this picture, many local vacua. They have different heights, so this vacuum has a lower energy some sense is more evacuated than this one or this one. And if someone popped you in this one and nudged you quite a lot, 
you could roll over the hill and fall into this one. And it could be that there's some erosion of the landscape by physical processes. It could change in time so that some of these valleys were flattened out and what was once a vacuum state or a valley was a valley no longer. So the whole picture becomes very different in modern physics. They are minima, local minima, energy states of a whole configuration uh, of particles interacting maybe, of radiation, uh, of magnets uh, or whatever. The next big jump in the story comes with the creation of a theory of quantum mechanics. And the quantum picture of the vacuum becomes rather remarkable and in some ways extraordinarily visible. The quantum picture of the vacuum adopts Maxwell's basic philosophy. But again, it's not just nothing. The quantum vacuum is seething with activity. Particles and antiparticles are appearing and disappearing, but doing so so quickly that they're unobservable by Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. In 1948, a Dutch physicist called Hendrik Casimir proposed a remarkable experiment that was eventually performed and tested as predicted in the early 1970s by Steve Lamoureux. And what his experiment demonstrated is what's now called the Casimir effect. The quantum vacuum is a sea of all possible waves of variation uh, of energy of all possible wavelengths. And if you put these plates down in that vacuum, then all possible wavelengths of variation will be present outside the plates, but only some particular wavelengths can fit in inside the plates. And so there's more wavelength, more pressure on the outside than there is between the plates. And so there will be a net force which pushes the plates together. And that's the Casimir effect, the force of the quantum vacuum. This effect is not entirely quantum mechanical, and it's been pointed out that if you look back in the uh, 19th century, in the 1820s, uh, the French Navy was well aware that there was a similar effect that could have disastrous effects for their ships. And in their naval regulations, there was an instruction that in a heavy swell, when ships were rocking in the waves a lot, two high-rigged ships should not come closer than about 70 or 80 meters to one another. And this, they had noticed, just by observation and disaster, the same type of effect. That if you have two ships rocking side by side, then water waves that are created uh, on the outside have all possible wavelengths, but only some will fit between the ships. So there is a net force on the ships which pushes them close together and their rigging can become entwined and there's a disaster. So this is a phenomenon that affects all types of wave fields. Well, most recently, the possibility of having the vacuum change has become a key ingredient in our understanding of the universe. The so-called inflationary universe exploits this possibility occurring in the very, very early stages of the universe. That it's possible for particular forms of elementary particle energy field to have energy landscapes that vary with time or with temperature. So you can start with one valley like this. As the temperature steadily falls, 
this maximum uh, can, or this minimum rather, can drop and then open up and become much deeper. And if this state of the universe, shown as a point here, rolls and moves and evolves slowly enough into the new deeper vacuum state, this will create a surge and acceleration in the expansion of the universe that has become known as inflation. Well, this scenario has uh, added complexity in that it's possible for the vacuum state and the transition and the change and the deepening valley to be different from place to place in the universe. And so in some places, you may fall into one valley, but in some other place, if you start up here, you fall into a different valley. And those differences can make all the difference in the world. So the different valleys that you might fall in might have different numbers of fundamental forces of nature occurring in them, different values of the constants of nature, even different numbers of large dimensions of space. So the properties that each vacuum state has attributed to it are absolutely crucial for the nature of the physics and the structure of the world that we eventually find ourselves living in 13 billion years later. In the last decade, the big problem in modern astronomy has been the issue that if we do fall into a particular vacuum state, this defines our universe today, how close should the energy of that final state be to the zero line? And for a long, long while, physicists thought, well, it's going to be exactly zero. There's no reason for it to be otherwise. Why should it be some strange, funny, absolutely tiny value? And they believed that we would eventually find a deep reason why it had to be absolutely zero today. But then astronomers discovered that the universe was accelerating. And that was evidence that our universe today is dominated by an energy field now known as dark energy, which is precisely the quantum vacuum energy of the universe. And this energy is not zero. It's absolutely tiny, 10 to the minus 120, an extraordinarily unlikely value. If it had been just 10 times bigger, however, we wouldn't be here because no galaxies, no stars would have been able to form. So here's the picture, care of NASA, of uh, the long-term evolution of the universe and the two periods of history when the stress of the quantum vacuum drives and accelerates the expansion of the universe. So once very early on, during this period of inflation, when there's a huge expansion in the size of the universe, and then about four billion years ago, when this acceleration takes over again and is driving the universe to expand faster and faster into the future. Well, finally, what might become of us in the future? This result about the vacuum energy dominating the expansion of the universe today was a big surprise. But is there an even bigger surprise to come in the near or even the far future for our descendants? We've assumed just now that we're on the bottom floor, that we're in the basement level of the universe in terms of its vacuum state. But what if we're not? What if we're at one of these intermediate, almost vacuous states, and with a particular nudge, high-energy cosmic ray, or some other slow evolution, 
there might be another dramatic decision to be made into a state whose physics we don't know, consequences of which uh, we can't yet predict. So with that rather worrying thought, uh, <laughs> I'll leave you to the panel and to John. Thank you. Thanks for that, John. So uh, let me just review the bidding before I bring the panel out here. We've got the concept of zero and nothing, which is the beginning of the universe, and please sit down. Um, and we've got the uh, concept of nothing, which involves the vacuum, as you've described. And then we've got this concept of nothing, which is the absence of everything, which seems to be a real moving target. Am I, am I close to a kind of a beginning here? Yes. All right. The others have got to have somebody to shoot. All right, yes. let's uh, bring out uh, Frank Wilczek, George Ellis, and Paul Davies. Please welcome them. <laughs> Frank Wilczek, closest to me, received the 2004 Nobel Prize in Physics for his work on the strong interaction within the nucleus of the atom, which is a key to several major problems in particle physics and beyond and relates to nothing in very interesting and cutting-edge ways that he will describe. George Ellis is Professor Emeritus of Applied Mathematics at the University of Cape Town and investigates the physical foundations of the flow of time. He is the co-author with Stephen Hawking of The Large-Scale Structure of Space-Time. And Paul Davies, a friend of this festival and uh, familiar to me and you, I'm sure. Paul Davies is director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona State University and the co-director of the ASU Cosmology Initiative. His research interests range from the origin of the universe to the origin of life. Welcome to all of you. So, um, yes, indeed. <laughs> Can we rank in scientific historical importance, George, the notion of the beginning as this zero, <laughs> the abstract notion of mathematical zero as nothing, or the vacuum, which uh, John uh, elaborated on, as nothing? Do you have a preference? Well, I, I think <laughs> what is really important is there are different kinds of nothing, and the most dramatic is, as was mentioned, the beginning of the universe. I wrote a book once called Before the Beginning, and that's a very paradoxical title because the beginning of the universe as understood in classical general relativity is not just the beginning of matter, it's the beginning of space and of time and of physics itself. And so before the beginning, there wasn't a before. <laughs> Our minds can't even begin to grasp that because there wasn't time there. And so you try to talk about a before the beginning, but the zero that was there or the nothing was there didn't have time, didn't have space, didn't have anything. And so physics really, really struggles to come to deal with that. There are theories some of my colleagues make about creation of the universe out of, of some previous fluctuation or something like that. And what they seem to be thinking of is that although there wasn't space, there wasn't time, the nothing that existed still had physics existing there in some kind of sense. In some sense, all the apparatus of quantum field theory existed before space and time came to existence. So there that had was to be a, rules for a beginning. There had to be there rules for a beginning. So there was, there was a nothing which didn't exist in any sense that we would recognize, but yet there was structure in that nothing out of which the universe came into existence. So everyone was fascinated about nothing, <laughs> but no one could actually find his address or, or actually turn out to date this nothing, <laughs> yeah. uh, even though he must have existed. Yeah. Um, in, in your work, Frank, 
Uh, it seems to me, and, and John uh, mentioned a little bit in his introduction, that uh, your domain is more the, the qualities of the vacuum that relate to the discovery really uh, within the last two or 300 years that, okay, you can pump the air out and you can kill some birds and mice, but uh, magnetism still works in the vacuum. Physical forces like gravity are still present in the traditional vacuum, but uh, down at the quantum level, the fact that these forces are all there means that nothing is a richer concept. To get rid of all of these forces involves a nothing that I can barely understand. Can you help me with that? Yes. Uh -huh. I, think so. <laughs> well, I, can, I can try. Uh, imagine you're a fish, a very, an intelligent fish, and imagine that uh, fish have been evolving for a long time, got intelligent. And eventually, some of these fists would become physicists. And uh, an intelligent fish physicist, OK. They would realize <laughs> that uh, the world that they saw around them, that they've taken for granted, that they thought was the way things had to be, is actually a substance, is water. We know it's water. They wouldn't have known. Ah, that so they could get simpler laws by imagining that there was no water, that they, they, they could, by a leap of imagination, imagine stripping out the water. Okay, also, they noticed that there were little ripples there. in the water. So there is a transition moment when the fish think that the water is just everything, yes. and when they become they take, aware that, no, in fact, water is a substance when that they, they take, operate in. Right. They, what they, they took it for granted. Got it. Thought its properties were inevitable and uh, also that it was passive, that nothing could happen to it. Now, in this metaphor, we're the fish. We've realized that what appears to our eyes and our senses as nothingness is actually a medium with properties that we can get better laws of physics, more basic laws by ascribing properties like a material to space. So it's, it's actually got stuff in it, things like quark, anti-quark condensates, they're called, uh, Higgs field condensates, that uh, change the way particles move. They would move in simpler ways, obey nicer equations if these materials weren't <coughs> there, just like in empty space without water, you get nicer laws of mechanics. All right, let me torture oh. your metaphor a little bit more. Then I'm, I'm an intelligent fish physicist who's become aware of water, but in this case, it's space-time, right? Something like that. And well, if, I, if I become tiny, tiny, tiny and can yes. observe phenomena in the quantum world, right. it sounds to me like you're saying nothing isn't a dark place, but it's a very active place. It's an extremely active. So there are two aspects. One is that it's got these materials in it, like the water. <laughs> But then uh, when you get down to really small sizes, then there are two things that uh, arise. First of all, you notice that the water is made out of little atoms. So similarly, we, th we think that we can analyze the material that space is, out of in term is made out of in terms of different particles. So the, the quark-anti-quark condensate, it's called, that fills all space is made out of, well, quarks and anti-quarks. And when it wiggles, it produces kinds of particles called pions. So we get really very much the old ether idea. Uh, 
The Higgs condensate, well, we don't know what it's made out of, but we know we get much simpler equations if we think there's this material filling all space, and we want at the LHC, at the frontier accelerators, to find out what the atoms are. And you've That's, actually, let's talk about that for a moment. You yes. have a project that is, uh, costs about how much? It, it, it's, it doesn't cost Still. anything real, because it's all in euros. It's all in euros, it's okay. All, <laughs> but uh, as, as, uh, as, Carl, as Carl Sagan might say, billions and billions of euros to develop a detector to detect... <clears throat> nothing. Nothing. To take really good... <laughs> to take really good pictures of nothing, because... It's a small bank collapse. We know that... Uh, well, another, so besides these materials that fill all space, there are also uh, waves you might think of, that, that, that there's constant jitter in the space. Uh, and everything that exists, we think, causes some kind of jitter. So there, there's... Uh, All right, let me, let me just get... Uh, just these, because I, I want to avoid the headline after you do your experiment, because news organizations may have trouble with they found nothing as the headline. Um, and, and so what you're actually looking for in these pictures is the space in which the interaction of these Higgs field, Higgs bosons, if you can discover them, the pions that you've described, and some of the other quark interactions, that there's a kind of an interstitial space between these interactions, and to, to see that, you would see nothing for the first time. Is that roughly correct? No. <laughs> what did I tell you? <clears throat> you have this constant activity where uh, particle-antiparticle pairs, we call them virtual particles, uh, come to be for a very short time, don't get very far apart from each other, and then re-annihilate. So these are called virtual particles, and what we see as empty space is uh, a boil with this stuff, everywhere and every when. Uh, we know that's true because we can calculate the effect of it on the things we do see, and you know, I got my Nobel Prize for some of that, and it's correct. You get, uh, and you got, uh, as far so, as we know. Uh, no, yeah, no, it's, well, correct. it's correct. <laughs> the, the, uh, lots of numbers. Uh, you threw me off. But, uh, uh, that, that, uh, okay, so now if you really want, if, so our eyes were not adapted, evolved, or designed, well, evolved. They weren't evolved to uh, resolve distances <clears throat> as small as 10 to the minus 14th centimeters or times as small as 10 to the minus 21 seconds, which is what's Relevant. No, I, I need glasses to read. Right. So, yeah, sure. It's, it wouldn't have helped us to uh, avoid predators or find desirable mates. So we don't look at all that stuff normally. We average over it. We don't have the resolution to see that structure. But if we did, we could see these particle-antiparticle pairs. And uh, the, the, the finer you want to see, the more energy you have to pump right. in to, to get that kind of resolution. Uh, and the LHC is going to let us take pictures at extremely short distances and see what, what's there. Great. Another aspect of it is the seeing is a very active process. To see something in a way, you have to create it. So it's like these virtual particles are like lava 
were like magma underneath the surface, and you have to supply energy to let them out. All right, that's great. Reality. As, right. as we allow that to, to bubble, Paul Davies, <laughs> I want to bring you in here yes. for a second, and then I know John has a, has a, a comment to make. Um, Frank mentioned this idea of the ether in, in his remarks a few moments ago. It seems to me that in a broad scientific level, there's a yearning for nothing and also a yearning for an ether, a kind of a, a mysterious substance that everything sorts of, sort of fits into, and that these have had real interesting cosmological consequences throughout the history of science. Uh, why do we have this yearning, and where do we stand on it now? Uh, let me first uh, say, regarding your comment uh, about what Frank said, that, uh, that finding nothing is not the same as not finding anything. <laughs> so it would be a disaster if they don't find, that's what's happening at the moment, because the machine's down, they're not finding anything. But finding nothing is a, is a, a positive step. Um, yeah, this ether concept uh, comes and goes, and there is a sense in which uh, what Frank was talking about, this sort of quantum vacuum, has some of the properties of, of the ether. He was talking about fish swimming through the sea, but the big difference is, of course, that the fish experience friction, whereas particles going through this quantum ether uh, don't experience any friction, at least under most circumstances. Um, but there are some, some circumstances in which you get a sort of frictional effect, and one uh, that has interested me, uh, which is squarely in this subject of nothing, is the black hole. Now, people often will say that um, a black hole is a hole in space. You know, what does that mean? That sounds like, like nothing. Uh, and the words uh, black hole, they were coined by John Wheeler. Uh, why do we call it a black hole? Well, uh, a star collapses and its gravity is so strong it traps light, so it's black. You can't see it from the outside. But if you uh, were sitting on the surface of the star, it just gets conveyed inwards to uh, an uncertain fate at the center. But the point is it vacates the region that it once <coughs> occupied. So it's empty. It's empty and black, uh, hence black hole. Uh, the thing about the physics of black holes, you have, it's a sort of act of faith. We're on the outside. We can't really know what's going on inside a black hole without jumping into it. And then you can't come back out and tell people what you've discovered. Let me address the audience on that subject because I, I want to stay with this black holes for just a second. How many people are fascinated by black holes? Clap if you are. We can't see. Some of the most, right. Right. Some of the most popular uh, characters in physics, how many people feel they have some intuitive understanding of what goes on in a black hole? Clap. A little less. It, it's fair to say that in the terms of nothing and the state of kind of our understanding of nothing, black holes are a very popular medium for conveying what's actually going on. Right, and, and this is where we can connect with the stuff that, uh, that John and, and Frank were talking about because um, in 1975, Stephen Hawking gave a famous lecture at the Rutherford Lab just outside London. I was there. You were probably there, George, yeah. In which he uh, demonstrated an argument that black holes are not really black, but they glow and emit heat radiation. And slowly evaporate away. And the big puzzle at the time was, if nothing can get out of a black hole, how do they lose energy? Because something's got to supply that heat, uh, that heat energy. Um, and the back reaction of that heat flowing out of the black <coughs> hole is to cause the black hole to shrink and eventually uh, disappear. So it was a big mystery as to where, as to how energy could get out of the black hole. And it's a problem I worked on, and it turned out that this quantum vacuum that we've been talking about, then the, John mentioned the Casimir effect, these plates right. that uh, attract each other. Um, the, the space between the plates has um, an energy which, relative to the rest of, of the universe, is negative. It's less energy than empty space. 
Uh, and that negative energy you get around the black hole, and it's the flow of the negative energy into the black hole that makes the black hole shrink, not positive energy coming out. So this has, it's reminiscent of ether, as you were mm -hmm. saying. It's as if there's this ether stuff which has negative energy that flows in. Now, it doesn't always have negative energy. Sometimes it can have positive. But around a black hole, and in fact, around the Earth, it's negative, and this negative stuff flowing in makes the mass of the black hole go down and the black hole shrinks. So that, that nicely explains how all that fits together. So, so, so the idea that the black hole has to exist in a kind of vacuum world that functions kind of like a substance and also like a kind of gap between the energy escaping and the energy that's trapped. That, that's sort of, but, but you see even more dramatically when the black hole is spinning, because a spinning black hole uh, radiates energy in a non-uniform way, and that acts to cause the black hole to eventually slow in its rate of rotation. So that's like a vacuum friction. It's almost as if the black hole is experiencing a friction with this quantum vacuum, and, is, and that friction is generating the heat that's coming off. It's one way of looking at it. It's sort of crude analogy, but, but it's quite good. John Barrow? Yeah, the picture that Frank was developing of thinking of the vacuum as a continuous sea of particle-antiparticle pairs that spring from nothing and borrow energy from the vacuum and pay it back just before it can be observed by us, so-called virtual pairs, uh, we can shed some light on both these issues. So if you imagine that just going on just on the boundary of the black hole, just right on the edge, and when the pairs appear, one of the pairs goes inside the horizon while the other is on the outside, so they can't get together and annihilate anymore. So the one that's on the outside now becomes observably real, uh, and the energy for it to do so has come from the gravitational field of the black hole. So this is another way of describing this hawking evaporation. Yeah, it's Steve, a simple, Stephen used a simple to, uh, picture. Push that idea, but yeah. the point is, you can't localize the particles within the size of the black but, hole. But let me just <laughs> let me just like, slow you down here for one second. You got the particle over here, right inside the black hole, right? You got the particle out here. They're trying to annihilate each other. Black hole's keeping them apart. This is something. This is something. The black hole is something. Where's the nothing? Well, whenever you, it's, another, it's like the Casimir plate, that when you apply a force to the vacuum, okay, you can stop these uh, particles annihilating and just going back into nothing. The something that they get, the energy that they get to make them real, comes from the applied force, the energy of the applied force field. So it's not coming from nowhere. And, I mean, the follow-on from what Frank said as well, which is more concrete. So if we imagine that we have our vacuum here, there's lots of, let's say, electrons and positrons appearing and disappearing, and then we put one electron down. So it's got a negative electric charge. Got it. Those positive and negatively charged ones that are appearing, then all the positively charged ones popping out of the vacuum tend to be attracted to that negative one that we've put down. So the electron suddenly finds itself shrouded by all these virtual positrons that right. are appearing. And so if another electron comes along from far away and gets a look at it, it doesn't see the whole negative charge of that single electron. It sees it slightly shielded. And so when it comes in to be deflected by it, it doesn't get deflected by as much if it just comes in rather slowly 
it gets deflected by the shielded charge, comes in with very high energy, it gets right through and gets a strong deflection. So the strength of the electromagnetic interaction depends on the energy of the environment now that you measure it. It's like having two pool balls. If you throw them together just as they are, they go bang and they rebound very strongly. But if you cover them in a thick shield of cotton wool and throw them together, they won't rebound so strongly because the hard surfaces won't get to bang each other. So they'll deflect much more weakly. So right, what well Frank got his prize for was showing that when you try this argument then for uh, the strong interaction between quarks, that's another effect that comes into play, and the whole thing goes in the opposite sense. As the energy goes up, the interaction becomes weaker and weaker, so-called asymptotic freedom. And so, so these are very concrete, measurable effects of what happens when you introduce particles into the vacuum changes the strength with which they interact with other particles because of the effect of the sea of intervening particles. Okay, and, and exploring that sea and exploring that medium is really this kind of deep complexity of the vacuum that, you know, and if you're starting to feel a little woozy, it's not because we are pumping the air out of the room, as uh, Boyle did. Um, although that would be an interesting experiment, but we do definitely know the result. Um, <clears throat> So it sounds to me a little bit that as far as scientific research is concerned, the, the, the good old zero as a signifier of, of nothing has been deposed by some of these more complex uh, theoretical physical notions. Um, and the notion of the beginning of everything has been put aside for a while. George, um, do you think that's the case? Yeah, yeah, but I'd just like to pick up something else about the vacuum. The vacuum at the larger scale, when we've averaged out all of this, look at the larger scale, it's really important the vacuum has size and, and it has a, a shape in a certain sense. If the vacuum is, is it's the background which determines how clocks measure times and how rulers measure distances, radar measures distance. And in, in relativity, we describe that by the metric tensor. The vacuum has a property which determines how big things are and how fast things happen. And that's one of the crucial properties. And it's that part of the, of, of the vacuum which gets curvature. And it's the curvature of that vacuum which then is a gravitational field. And so one mustn't forget these macro properties as well as the micro properties. So, so the vacuum is the shape of reality, is the shape of physical properties, contains the rules of how they interact in yeah. some sense? It's the rule yeah. book? Uh-oh, you're getting alarmed. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that there are electric fields and magnetic fields, and then there's also a metric field. Yeah. So all, all these things are properties of space. How do um, zero, the beginning, Hall Davies, and this notion of the vacuum converge, if at all? Because it seems to me they're a... <laughs> big bang of our original fear of the negation of everything, which is what John Barrow talked about in uh, you know, early ancient times. I think it's really important uh, what George was saying about in a simple model of the big bang, the uh, t equals zero, the zero of time, is the origin of, of time, space, matter, and energy. So before the big bang, so to speak, there was no space, no time, no matter, no energy, no thing, literally nothing. Mm -hmm. So the question is, can we understand a universe coming into being from nothing as a natural process, or is it a supernatural process? Now, if it's a natural process, then there has to be some sort of laws which are able to cause the universe to do that. So you have to think of these laws as having some transcendent existence. The laws are not in space-time. They're in some 
platonic realm outside of this space-time. But then, of course, that raises the interesting question that it would be a very strange law that operated only once. Right. That caused the Big Bang to go bang, and that's it. That's so, the laws are done deal. So surely there should be many bangs. Well, so so, so let, me, let, me, let me try <laughs> well, to <laughs> condense that a little bit out of the ether. So, so the difference between this absolute nothing or absolute beginning <laughs> idea, which is, I guess, a creation myth, uh, and a, a single, sort of single-time Big Bang, uh, and the way that we're beginning to understand how these beginning sort of singularity events work is that maybe the beginning is a, is a sort of a door between one kind of something and another something, and that the, the, the nothing is this sort of transition point where we jump through the hole. Maybe it's in a black hole, or maybe it's in a jetpack, or... Well, it was a transition point back in the, in the bad old days when people thought there was just a space-time singularity there, but we now got all this fancy quantum stuff to explain how the universe can be born as part of some sort of quantum process. Now, that's the, the hope that so we'll be able to understand so you're that. You're saying before we just thought there were singularities as a way right. to get to and an alternative universe, and now we have science. many other doors? Right, yeah. Why wasn't so, I told about this? Uh, well, it, you know, it was all put together in the 70s and 80s. Where were you? Yeah. Uh, but it's pure it, assumption well, that, that there was a beginning to the universe at all. We're, right. so we're sort of biased by our historical, uh, you know, traditions and we're very comfortable with the idea that the universe appears out of nothing for religious reasons but there's no reason at all why we just have to focus upon cosmological theories where the universe has a beginning you know, it may not have a beginning uh, in time it's not demanded it's a possibility within theories but it's no way demanded but the big problem if it doesn't have a beginning is you don't explain the existence of something uh, just because it's always been there so you've still got a job of explaining to do. So you can push no nothing back to minus infinity, but it doesn't actually solve the fundamental problem, explaining why there is something rather than nothing, and why this particular set of things, this particular set of laws, this particular universe, or collection of universes. When he said why there's something rather than nothing, he was using nothing in the other sense of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the, old, the old obsolete nothing. Yeah. Well, Leibniz said uh, famously, that the, the question of what is nothing is, is probably totally the wrong question, and that we should really be focused on why is there something at all? Why should there be something? Uh, why should something come about uh, under any circumstances? And he found that a, a terrifying uh, There's a quick answer to, to that. You know the, the, there's the, a quick the, answer to that? Well, yes, because uh, uh, there's only one way you can have nothing, because there's nothing. Okay, but there are many ways you can have something, so it's much more likely there'll be something than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Simple no, statistics. Nothing, nothing was an only child. Uh, we have like a, a car you might movie. like to buy as well. <laughs> Go ahead, Frank. Speech. Uh, we, I think we are uh, pressing the limits of speculation here, but we can say a few definite things. We don't have laws that are adequate to extrapolate all the way back to the Big Bang or whatever came before. We just don't know. However, this realization that what we think of as empty, what we perceive as empty space ordinarily is in fact a medium, opens up lots of new possibilities. Because if you, th if you suddenly discover that you're just surrounded by a medium, you're surrounded by water, you can think, well, maybe that water could make ice. Maybe you could make steam. Maybe you could, it could exist in different kinds of phases. Uh, there are other kinds of molecules around. Maybe they could crystallize in funny ways. 
So we have lots of possibilities for space behaving in fundamentally different ways, which would mean that the materials propagating through space, the particles, the objects, would have very different properties. And uh, that's not just speculation that, well, it is speculation, but it's, uh, uh, some of it is not. Some, we, have, we have some examples of that where uh, we know there could be different phases at high, at high temperature that where parts of what we think of as empty space would boil and have very different properties. Uh, but we've, but we're very, we've become very good at uh, postulating different kinds of phases of space that allow things like inflation, that allow the laws of physics to look very different. And if we hit the right combination, uh, maybe that'll enlighten us as to the very beginning. But in the, in the meantime, we're pushing further and further back, and we've come a long way. Uh, the short answer, though, to, I think, to why is there nothing, why is there something rather than nothing, at least a big part of the answer, is that nothing is unstable. You could imagine a world without quarks, quark and anti-quarks filling all space. You could imagine a world without the Higgs field uh, filling all space, but those are unstable. If you've uh, cleaned out space of those materials, they would spontaneously form and liberate energy. But, I, and again, so, I'm, I'm, I'm an ignoramus here. That seems contradictory to the idea of, you know, everything goes to entropy, that, that, that essentially you're, you're constantly in a declining energy state, whereas you're saying, in fact, uh, the uh, natural state is just the opposite, to go from nothing to something. Well, got him. <laughs> 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 Sorry, that was a cheap shot. That was totally. <laughs> no, but something. That's you, because you think you think of you think of nothingness as having uh, the smallest possible energy, but it doesn't. Uh -huh. act, you actually gain energy by creating this stuff. A way to think about it is that if you have attractive forces between particles that are strong enough, then you can have a net gain in energy by producing the particles that cost you something. Right but then you gain it all back and more by having them attract each other and come together. And that's precisely what we think happens in the case of this Higgs condensate, in the case of this quark-anti-quark condensate, about which we know a lot. I mean, that, that's, clear not, to me, that's not speculation. It's clear to me that the pop quiz on this session will have Higgs condensate in it. And, uh, that is absolutely clear. John Barrow, is it fair to say, and, and I want to wrap up from all of you, and, and I'll uh, back off here for a second, but. Uh, uh, that, that part of the narrative that you so eloquently described at the beginning of this uh, evolution of nothing, at least as it resides in our hearts as human beings and our orientation to the world, whether we're scientists or not, is a discovery that what we thought was nothing is actually something on a smaller and smaller and smaller scale, and that this discovery of some things in those old nothings is, is a fascinating focus of science right now? Yeah, what was once merely philosophy or theology or speculation has entered a, a rather harder environment where you can test it. So this vacuum energy, which I mentioned as supposedly accelerating the universe today, this is something that you can test more exquisitely. One of the remarkable properties about the vacuum is that it really is a vacuum. It must be such that however you move and look at it, you know, it can't have a lower energy. 
you can't make a lower energy by just moving and looking at it in a particular way. And that property alone is sufficient to characterize what its pressure will be in terms of its density. And we don't know if the vacuum energy, so-called, that seems to be accelerating the universe has precisely that relationship between its pressure and its density. It almost has, but there's room for it to be very slightly different, for it to be something that's not quite the pure and simple vacuum energy. And astronomers would love, by more and more detailed measurements, to know for sure whether the universe is being accelerated by this true vacuum energy or by something that's not quite vacuum energy, just almost like it. And that's a great astronomical observational problem for, for the next decade, to sort of really narrow in on, on that and again make concrete something that previously was, you know, it's rather speculative, it's rather philosophical, but it's now become part of observational science. Paul, is, is, is that the sort of chase for dark energy uh, and, and that dark energy is really a search for this chilly right, right. vacuum as it exists in our universe and right. we haven't so been able to you, find it? You think, just think of dark energy as the energy of empty space. And you might think, well, why has empty space got any energy? Well, we've heard all about the, the quantum effects and so on. Um, now, you can't just pluck a bit of empty space out of the universe and put it on the bathroom scales and weigh it. So the only way you can actually get a handle on this energy of empty space is, as John was saying, doing the cosmological observations as to whether the universe as a whole, uh, whether the rate of expansion is, well, we know it's speeding up, but whether uh, the, the speed up is, is itself speeding up or slowing down. Uh, and the, it's a, a sort of depressing thing because the astronomers could determine that it is speeding up or slowing down, but what they can never know for sure is if it's exactly on that borderline, if, this, if the um, vacuum has the properties John was saying, this relationship between the pressure and the, uh, and the energy density, um, if it's got this simple form, uh, then it means that the universe is going to uh, go on expanding forever at an accelerating rate. Um, but any sort of, we will never know, may never know, uh, what well, it'll hit us in, in a big way, uh, that, that's for sure. I mean, George, react to uh, John's <laughs> suggestion that maybe we might wake up some morning and the vacuum energy of the universe that we thought, which we've learned is the sort of basis for all sort of physical calculations, suddenly chills down a few Kelvin and, and all of a sudden we <laughs> cease to exist. Um, <laughs> is that likely? Uh, I don't think anybody knows if it's lucky or not. <laughs> Do you think about that? Well, it hasn't happened. <laughs> <laughs> Would it affect New York first? <laughs> there was serious concern about this. I mean, Frank became involved in people were worrying that turning on the LHC might be sufficiently precipitous. Well, to and, and the... And the this is the relativistic the heavy ion collider on Long Island. Yes. You should really worry. No, no, no. Actually, actually, you shouldn't. Uh, there were just a few, I mean, can, uh, these black holes are kind of like ice cubes thrown in the punch bowl, and all of a sudden, kaboom, we go down. And you're real, oh, you're shaking, you're <laughs> nodding. I see. Well, well, Cosmic the, the, rays would have yeah. done it I see. more effectively than anything that we could do. So the, the worst case scenario is you nucleate a little bubble of this lower energy vacuum, John yeah. showing right. the staircase. Uh, then that expands outwards at more or less the speed of light. Yeah. 
uh, you don't know it's happening until it hits you, and then uh, all your and you still don't particles... You still don't know it's happening. <laughs> um, and, and it just engulfs the entire universe. There's a rather good novel by uh, Stephen Baxter called Time, in which this is the theme. So if this were to happen, it would happen so quickly that no one would really ask, say, you know, what is the future of journalism? It would be moved. Yeah. <laughs> No. So yeah, I wouldn't have to cover that story. You, you don't know it till it hits yeah. you. You don't have to worry about it, because if it's false, you don't have to worry about it. If it's true, you don't have to worry about it either. <laughs> but the, All right, the so, serious uh, answer is that... The ser okay, the serious answer, so, Frank. ...is that nature has been doing experiments and with uh, more violent, extreme conditions than we can create here on Earth for a long time with cosmic rays in outer space. You know, we, we can study them better in a controlled way by, doing it, by having accelerators, but nature has been doing this all over for a long time. If something catastrophic were going to happen, it would have happened a long time ago. And indeed, we could already be ruined by uh, the, the external forces and wouldn't know it, which is a great comfort, right. I think, to me. Um, we want to get the, this great audience uh, involved. Um, can we have the house lights up just a tiny bit? If anyone has a question, this is a small enough hall. You can raise your hands and shout it out, and I'll repeat it. Anyone? I know there are a lot of black hole enthusiasts here. Anyway, right here. Stand up. Shout it out. Things have gone awfully quiet. You're talking about a lot of speculative stuff about like why something rather than nothing. How do you jump from that those kind of questions to like actual things you measure? How do you jump from the absolute question? We were talking about yeah. this earlier. Just to the rest of the audience, how do we jump from the absolute question of there was nothing and then there was something to things that you can measure more on, on a, 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 I guess you said, radiation level. Well, let me give you an example. Uh, one of the aspects of space is that it's filled with uh, bound pairs of quarks and antiquarks. These are called sigma mesons. Theoretically, we can calculate theoretically that space is supposed to be filled that way. Uh, from that hypothesis, you can derive consequences then that you can check experimentally. So the presence of this medium changes how particle, other particles move in a way that can be checked. Uh, you can calculate what happens when the material oscillates, and it turns out that when it oscillates, uh, those vibrations are things we see as another kind of particle. It's called, called pi mesons. So it's very concrete, and one of the big goals of the uh, Rick Accelerator on Long Island, in fact, is to create temperatures so high in a small region of space that these quarks and anti-quarks, which are normally everywhere filling space, boil away. It's like water going into steam. So you create a new phase in which space is different. Space is emptied out. And then you can calculate consequences of space then has to fill in. It's like, like you've uh, emptied out some region of air and suddenly you, know, you, let it, you let the air back in, the outside world impinges, and you can calculate consequences of uh, the equations that you check in other ways. So it, it's a little bit like the uh, quantum version of the experiment done with exactly, the two hemispheres. Exactly, very much, right. So, uh, so that's the, the basic process is we, we dream up ways of improving our equations. We make pictures of what space might be like. Uh, and then we use those pictures and dreams to uh, calculate 
experimental consequences, and then they're either right or not. If they're right, we're encouraged. If not, well, we go back and try another dream. That's, that's the basic process. At, at, the, at, the other end, at the other end of the scale, space has size, and as the universe expands, it's space that has been expanding. But as it expands, it's had little vibrations put on it which are associated with the way that structure is formed. And the fact that the galaxy exists and that stars exist comes because these vibrations in the space-time structure in the vacuum as it expanded had exactly the form they did, which is, in a sense, the reason that galaxies and, and clusters of galaxies exist. So this, this irregularity in space determines the shape of matter as we see it in the galaxy yeah. in, uh, yeah. as, as, as astronomers. Other, a question right here on the end. Stand up, shout it out. Question for those of you who didn't hear it is if, if time moves in one direction, there are one set of assumptions, and we've been talking about that mostly up on stage. But what are the uh, what is the evidence that maybe time fluctuates either in its rate or in its direction, and would that affect any of the discussion this evening? Well, we don't have a really good theory of space-time fluctuations on really a very very small scales, but we've been we've done very very well. It would be difficult to exaggerate how well we've done <laughs> by assuming we can ignore all that stuff. <laughs> I saw you it didn't have to work, but it does. I saw you yeah. shaking your head, Paul. Well, yeah, it's just that, that uh, time isn't, isn't moving. It isn't flowing. So to a physicist, time is just there. It doesn't have a, uh, a direction in the sense of a, of a, of a flux or a movement. Uh, so Newton had this idea that, uh, that time is uh, flowing equally without relation to anything external, I think is the way he put it. But we don't think of time that way anymore. It's just there. Now, there's an asymmetry of the world in time. There's a distinction between future and past directions of time. I've noticed. But it's not flowing or moving <laughs> anywhere. And so there is this question well, about, you know, could, could time run backwards is the way it's often uh, badly expressed because it's not really running anywhere. But could there be a region of space where... You were talking about entropy going up. Could there be a region of space where entropy is going down? And then how would it fit in with our region of space and so on? There's vast literature on all that. I won't attempt to summarize it now. John uh, Barrow, I believe Einstein said at one point that time is the phenomenon that keeps everything in the universe from happening at once. Um, what does that mean? Yeah, I don't think it was Einstein. Wheeler, it was a it? famous piece of graffiti that was found on the wall of the men's restroom. <laughs> 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 physics department at the University of Texas Austin. So, so. And we know Einstein didn't use that restroom, so there you go. <laughs> so, so time exists to stop everything happening at once. I mean, an odd feature of the, the pure quantum vacuum state that would describe uh, accelerating universe or uh, an inflating universe is it's actually blind to the direction of time. So if you're in one of these universes, um, the expansion rate is constant and you could not, by making any observations, distinguish the future from the past. Um, and even the fluctuations that we observe in the universe that, that were just mentioned, uh, that turn into to galaxies, 
So these are the little jigglings of energy that have to accompany any quantum state, whether it's vacuum or not. And the great surge of expansion stretches them and makes them larger in the universe today where we can observe them using satellites like WMAP or, or Planck. So we have a way of testing observationally what were the fluctuations like when the universe was 10 to the minus 35 a second old. Yes, you can kind of re reverse the movie a little bit and, yeah. and extrapolate what it was like. Uh, other question. Oh no. Observer, yes. Oh, hold on. The, the question was, uh, <laughs> you, you speak only of the observer of these phenomena, and she's wondering if consciousness affects how some of these phenomena uh, actually manifest themselves. Is that fair? All right, great. There's anyway. no evidence for it. I mean, we do very, very delicate experiments that test the laws of quantum mechanics, that test our understanding of the basic interactions with great precision. And we never have to worry about what anybody's thinking about it. Yeah, it I mean, could have been different. I mean, we could, could have been that we get different results depending on what people are thinking about, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, except, I mean, let's look at what John Barrow said at the beginning. I mean, if Aristotle sort of walked in here and, and, and observed this, he'd go, see what I was saying? There is no nothing, right? You're right. There, there's all this interaction. There's all this stuff going on. There is no oh. absolute nothing. Well, go, of course, if I was right all along. If your standards are low enough, you can never be wrong. Yes, you've described the Fox Network. Yes. So, uh, but so I think if you say the serious inscrutable things, then uh, yes, yeah. they can be interpreted in a good light. But, but clearly, our concept of space is very, very different than transcends anything that Aristotle could possibly have been thinking about. Uh, let, me, let me actually expand on that point a little bit. I think from an evolutionary point perspective, uh, it would have been shocking if our senses, which were designed to give us sort of a way of functioning in the world, uh, dealing with practical problems, if they exhausted reality. And now from today's perspective, we learn that uh, actually our senses are very, very small samples of reality. Our eyes, you know, first of all, they're very small. <laughs> Secondly, and only a little bit of light gets in. Secondly, it's just light. It's not radio waves, it's not... Uh, x-rays, it's not all this other stuff that we know is out there. Uh, so, in a sense, the fact that what, where we see nothing, there's actually lots of stuff, is not so shocking. It's, it confers it's a very, kind of objectivity on us because yeah, we see so little. But, but what's inspiring is that by using instruments, by using our noodles, we can see a lot that nature was, didn't equip us to see, and then we, could, we can really do more justice to what's out there. Did you have a comment on that, John? Yeah, I mean, remember the observations are not sort of made by our consciousness. They're registered right. on photographic plates uh, right. and with other detectors, and we use our consciousness to interpret what we see there. The point, the big question 
serious question behind the uh, lady's question is really, does our mind so over-interpret or under-interpret or bias the evidence that, that we sort of distort what true reality is? And Kant had a serious philosophical view about that, that our mind contains certain interpretational categories which biased us towards gathering certain sorts of evidence. What Kant didn't know about was the theory of evolution by natural selection. And I think we can argue quite strongly that this type of bias uh, is not serious in most of the areas where we do physical science. Consider, for example, your ears. Uh, your ears have evolved, whether you think about them or not, uh, in response to something that we call sound. And the structure of our ears are adapted to be receivers of this something that we call sound, whatever we might think about it. And the fact that what has resulted by the evolutionary process is a sound detector which really fits very well with our theory of what this uh, thing called sound is like and how it behaves shows that there really is something called sound. It's not just a figment of our imagination or some category of thought, but its reality is impressed upon us by the evolution of receptors for sound. And similarly with our eyes, they witness to the reality of something called light, which by adapting to it uh, helps us survive and procreate more effectively. So the theory of evolution by natural selection plays a very important part in a realist theory of many aspects of the physical world which impinge upon our existence uh, and our development. A, a final question, right here. Do the string theorists have anything to add to the theory of nothing? And are there any string theorists on our stage? They can add lots of nothing, right? Yeah, they... they, they, <laughs> they, they <laughs> With too much of nothing, that, that song? No, no. They well, haven't got the sign right yet, have they? Well, the string theory is a very serious attempt to improve the equations of physics. But so far it hasn't gelled. So... We just have to wait and see. It's very much worth pursuing. And so it's in the middle of the not anything versus nothing construct that you uh, yes, talk, but, talked about earlier. But it hasn't, made, yeah, it hasn't really made serious contact with empirical reality yet. But we have... <laughs> we have... It's a pretty serious charge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but the, we uh, have... But yeah. as I... We do... But it could, it could. And uh, the, we have lots, it's a, it's a multi-front struggle, our coming to terms with reality. And the and pro and anti-string theory we smackdown will be on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we have different tactics, different strategies, uh, different exciting ideas, and uh, it's hard to tell in advance which one is going to break through. Yeah, no, you made your point on no empirical reality thing. I think uh, <laughs> your, your whole tolerance speech there is very touching. But I, yeah, I, <laughs> um, anyway, let me, let me propose a final <laughs> radical question that uh, will produce a lot of anxiety and uh, uh, send us off into the night thinking about nothing. 
Um, what if this is a like, uh, you know, mathematicians describe something called a sort of scaling question that when you look at the coastline on a map at a certain distance from Earth, it's one distance. As you get closer, it's another distance. As you get deeper and deeper, it actually becomes infinite. And that in a sense, this entire, and it goes back to the question of uh, the, uh, the lady about consciousness, that in the end, is it possible that all we're going to get from this inquiry is a chronology of our yearnings as human beings, as opposed to finding some definitive nothing, that, the, that essentially the coastline will never scale to something uh, that reaches a place, that it will simply be these humans, oh, they're getting to the, when they turn on that LAC, we're gonna have to show them some Higgs bosons or they'll be disappointed. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's a, it's a little bit of an of a interactivity between our consciousness and this puppet show called the uh, reality. <laughs> what did I tell you? <laughs> That was a statement, not a question. Right. <laughs> well, and you have to decide, you going to take for an answer? Because it's the Tower of Turtles. You see. We, we're, we're following things down, and we're looking for the ultimate explanation. Um, um, and maybe we, we're trying to root that ultimate explanation in, in something like nothing, or some sophisticated We understand more and more. And I'm well, not sure that it would be a good thing if we decided I mean, what would it mean to have I a final theory? What would it mean to have a final theory of everything? It would mean that you don't think you can do any better. In practice, that's what it means. Uh, I don't see it. I don't see it uh, any, that we're anywhere close to that. And we're learning wonderful new things all the time. And uh, I think we will, at least for the foreseeable future. So I'm very optimistic. No, and I, and I share it. Uh, final thoughts from John uh, and George? I, I want to give one final thought, which is at the macro scale, when we've gone over all of these fluctuations, the thing which is most worrying to me is something <coughs> which hasn't been mentioned. If I hold my fingers up and you ask what goes between there and there, if you look at the vacuum there, the standard answer is there's an infinite number of points there, not just an infinite, uncountable infinity of points. Now, I find that really worrying. I think that's got to be wrong. I think the thing's got to be quantized at the smallest scale. So there isn't an uncountable infinity of points between. There's actually, there's a finite number of points. And that's one of the aspects which relates to the quantization of gravity, which will be somehow touched and discussed in the future. No, that's, a, that's a great point. Uh, Paul? Uh, yeah, we've, um, uh, there was a lot of puzzlement about the universe coming into existence from nothing at a finite time ago, and we're trying to wrap our heads around it. It's worth remembering that in the 5th century, Augustine said the world was made with time and not in time. So that's actually a very ancient concept. Uh, so it may be hard for us to understand, but it's certainly not new. John? Well, we're familiar with four <coughs> forces of nature in the benign and low-energy world that we move around in gravity, electromagnetism, the weak and the strong interaction. Uh, it always worries me that there might be many other fantastically weak forces that have absolutely no everyday or even LHC consequences at all. They have no cosmological consequences. So they have no practical implication for our description of the world. But if you try to find a fundamental theory of everything without including them in the jigsaw puzzle, you'll have a crucial piece missing. So I always worry that by thinking that the only forces that there are are the ones that we just happen to have the technology to be able to detect is possibly 
ultimate sort of anti-Copernican prejudice about the nature <laughs> of the universe. So nobody would have believed there was a cosmological constant 20 years ago, that there would be a fantastically weak quantum vacuum force, and they were completely wrong. So it's a little bit of so, a long tail theory of physics that the, the hit makers are what we're focused on, but there's a tremendous potential market out there for out-of-print forces and <laughs> uh, long discontinued uh, right. particles and, and that we'll be discovering Well, them. one of the great frustrations of my career so far is that I know a way to make the equations of physics much prettier by introducing a new kind of particle uh, called the axion. Whose, however, whose interactions with ordinary matter are so weak that uh, we don't know how to detect it. So, you, you might talk to the GOP, that, GOP about that, uh, actually. That, um, well, anyway... We're uh, struggling with that, but, but, they are. But, it, but this has happened before. It happened with neutrinos. Neutrinos for a long time were a theoretical uh, invention that people didn't know how to detect. It happened with the the microwave background radiation. So, uh, so we do have a, we do have enough imagination to dream up new forces. I'm thinking of factors of ten to forty. <laughs> well, factors of not, two. Nothing is not nothing. And I want to thank uh, John Barrow, Frank Wilczek, uh, George Ellis, Paul Davies for a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you.